the two commonest uh, ways that I hear the word placebo used in medicine are, how do you know that's not just a placebo effect? And the most interesting word in that sentence is just. Yeah. Or we have to rule out the placebo effect. We should be ruling it in. That's what you want to happen. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's pure healing from within. And the goal of good medicine should be to elicit the maximum healing response with the minimum intervention. Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's episode is recorded live at True Foods Kitchen with Dr. Andrew Weil. Hi, Dave. Do you go by Andy or Andrew? Both. Both. All right. I didn't do a cool fact of the day. I'm going to do one, and then we're going to get into the interview, but I just wanted people to know, you might hear some kitchen noise and all. That's because we're actually, we just enjoyed an amazing meal here and uh, just had a chance to talk. Today's cool fact of the day is that positive or negative mindsets about aging can change your physical health. And this is according to a psychologist at the Yale School of Public Health who looked at negative aging attitudes compared to, oh, how fast can you walk when you're old? Uh, How likely are you to get Alzheimer's and even just die more quickly? And it turns out subliminal exposure to age positive words can lead to physical improvements in older people that typically come about only after exercise. This is why if you read Superhuman, my anti-aging book, I talk about the value of our village elders. It's a little different than being an old person, although old person isn't a bad thing either. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's, there's your thing. So let's look at aging as something that's good for you, not bad for you, and maybe you won't have to exercise. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Well, if you have lived under a rock for the past 30 years, you probably don't know uh, Dr. Weil. He's uh, been, a for decades, a leading voice in alternative and uh, functional medicine, uh, using foods as um, herbs. And I got to say, starting sometime in my early 20s, I became a subscriber um, to your newsletter, uh, <laughs> which is which is incredible. So to sit here with you is is a real honor. Thank you. <laughs> I I'd like to understand uh, when you were a, a young man figuring out the, the medical side of things, you got into this way ahead of the curve. Why? Well, I think I came into the world this way. You know, I was intensely curious as a kid. I was always I I was very interested in plants. Uh, and that eventually led me to be a botany major at Harvard as an undergraduate. Um, and that started me on a career interest in medicinal plants. So that was before I went to medical school. Uh, I also, as far back as I can remember, was interested in the mind and how the mind affected the body. Um, that 
eventually led me to take a course in medical hypnosis, which was one of the best courses I ever took. And I am um, absolutely convinced that the mind and body are one thing. They're not separable. And that one of the uh, greatest limitations of modern medicine is that it sees the mind and body as separate. And if it recognizes the mind at all, it doesn't admit that it can influence the body. I've often looked back at, at how we got these attitudes. And we have the National Institutes of Health and we actually set up our national research uh, around mind versus body. And mm -hmm. so studying them together almost requires you to get two grants from two different opposing bodies. And it, is, is that why we have such a weird divide in the West? Well, I mean, you could say it goes back to Descartes. Okay. Uh, but I think the, the fact is that our science and our medicine are completely dominated by a materialistic paradigm uh, that says that all that is real is that which is physical and which can be touched and measured. And that if you observe a change in a physical system, the cause has to be physical. Uh, Non-physical causation of physical events is not allowed for in the materialistic scientific paradigm. And that's why we can't make sense of placebo responses and why hypnosis is not taken seriously in medicine and uh, why it strikes people as outlandish that your attitudes about aging could influence the way that you age. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you'd tie it back to that. Yeah. It, it's really funny though. I, I feel like lately the data is coming out more and more. Like We can measure exactly what the percentage of the placebo effect is. Mm -hmm. And when you stare at the the totality of the data, you just have to say there's something going on that we don't know about. But maybe but we're starting still, to admit it's it. like the our attitudes toward it are so wrongheaded. The the two commonest uh, ways that I hear the word placebo used in medicine are: how do you know that's not just a placebo effect? And the most interesting word in that sentence is just. Yeah. Or we have to rule out the placebo effect. We should be ruling it in. That's what you want to happen. <laughs> you know, that's pure healing from within. And the goal of good medicine should be to elicit the maximum healing response with the minimum intervention. Now, think about what would happen if you were allowed to say what some plant ingredients at True Foods Kitchen actually did for people on the menu. You think yeah. that'd have a placebo effect? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I am a, a great fan of placebo medicine, you know, yeah. and, and I think the, the best thing you can do as a physician is to present a treatment to a patient with your full belief that this is an effective treatment and patients beliefs follow physicians beliefs and to get the, you know, so this is why I teach it is best to get the maximum healing response with the least intervention. So you start with the the gentlest intervention possible as demanded by the circumstances of, of illness. And you can work up from there. You've written 14 books yeah. on uh, various aspects of this. You're into mind and body. Where do people start? Do you start with food or do you start with meditation? No, actually, I start with trying to convince people that the human organism has incredible potential to heal itself. So you start I mean, with mindset before either one. But this is not just mindset. It's also the physical reality that our bodies have an array of mechanisms to maintain equilibrium, to maintain balance, and to regenerate tissue, to adapt to injury and loss. And most people I meet do not have great confidence in their own body's healing powers. Mm. So that's where I start from. And a lot of okay. what I've written has been trying to convince people. Um, you know, the the one of the books that I wrote was Spontaneous Healing, and that's it's a, just about that. If you look at the whole spectrum of illness, most diseases end by themselves. And they yeah. end because the body is able to take care of them. There's a famous um, adage in medicine, it might be Maimonides who said that, I don't remember who it's attributed to, that the business of the physician is to distract the patient until time heals the problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard that, and it, it makes sense yeah. because you do get better. But then again, I look back to when I was 300 pounds, and I had a lot of chronic illnesses. I had more estrogen and less testosterone than my mom. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my thyroid levels were very, very low. Uh, and I was, I, I was really feeling it. And no, no matter what I did, it, 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 this, I went to a dozen doctors and, and I was kind of stuck at, at the accelerator all the way to the floor. I'm pushing harder, but there's no more room for it to go. And I wasn't getting better. And, and I feel like 
maybe because of that experience, I, I see a lot of people who are in that my, I, I've something's happened. Yep. My body isn't getting better. What's going on in, in those? Well, I think that when, when I sit with a patient who is stuck, uh, what I what's going through my mind is why is healing blocked here? You know, since healing is the rule rather than the exception, what is blocking it? What can I do from outside that might identify and remove obstacles to healing? Is there a way to supply more energy to the body's healing mechanisms? You know, what can I do from outside? But I think it's very important to recognize that healing comes from within. And treatment is something done from outside. Right. Optimally, treatment can elicit healing. But I think that's commonly confused. The example that I often use is if you have a patient uh, critically ill with bacterial pneumonia and you put them in the hospital and give them intravenous antibiotics, 72 hours later, they're out of danger. It's very easy to think that the antibiotics caused the cure. But that's, I think that the better way, more useful way to interpret that is that what antibiotics do in that circumstance is reduce levels of bacteria down to the point where the immune system can take over and finish a job that it couldn't do because it was overwhelmed. And to me, that's a model of the relationship between treatment and healing. That's a beautiful way of thinking about it. It, it feels like the things that held back my healing the most and just the skepticism that, that I faced oh. came from this mindset that said, that can't be or that can't happen, therefore it didn't. Okay, so... I have heard many of patients that I've dealt with over the years have come back to me and said that the most important thing that I did for them was that I was the only doctor they saw who told them they could get better. <laughs> now, that in one way, that makes me very sad. But, yeah. but on the other hand, you know, I, I believe that. I mean, sometimes I'll say to a patient, I know you can get better. I don't know how you can get better. I, I will give you things to try. I can send you to people yeah. to work with, but I know it is possible for you to get better. Now, you mentioned the National Institute of Health. Yeah. Uh, I wrote in one of my books that that's really misnamed. If you look at the names of the institutes that make it up, yeah. where is the Institute of Health and Healing? The, it's the, really the <laughs> National Institutes of Diseases and Body Parts. You know, there is no National Institute of Health. Yeah. There should be. And what I would do, you know, what, well, I think one of the main jobs of that institute would be to compile a national registry of remission. So that if you were diagnosed with a disease or have a problem like yours, you call them up and they can put you in touch with someone in your area who had what you have and is now better. Yeah. That would be a very powerful oh, message wow. that could overrule all of those negative expectations that you have. I was just on the phone two days ago with a referral from a friend who is a a, a powerful executive, a former powerful executive at a, a big company, um, almost 40 years old, and had to retire because of toxic mold poisoning. And the conversation was, I feel like there's no hope, I can't possibly get better. And and I'm looking at this going, look, my levels of all the mycotoxins in my blood were worse than yours, and, and I was way more trash than you are. Uh, and I just decided, look, I'm totally okay to die trying. I bought disability insurance when I was 26. Like either I'm going to hack it or I'm I'm going to go out fighting because it's it wasn't acceptable. But it it took five times to say, you know, this is going to take six months to a year to get most of your function back. You just have to do the work. Um, but it feels like most of the chronic things, the first thing they take away is they take away willpower. Right. Like like the yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the zest yeah, yeah. to fight it. Yeah. How do you advise patients when they come in and say, I'm too tired, I can't do it, I can't remember? Now, I'll just tell you just what well, this is. I'll just tell you a story. I was just with a, um, I have a, a longtime friend, a Japanese man, mm -hmm. who had metastatic uh, renal cell cancer. Okay. Um, metastases to the lung. Um, was, his lifestyle was not great. And uh, he was given chemotherapy, but very dire. Uh, predictions and everyone told him how he had to fight this. He he is now this is now 40 50 years later he's a picture of health. And the for him the the single greatest change he made was a mental change. He decided that since he had created his cancer, he had to love his cancer. And rather than fight it, he had to accept it and <laughs> and love it and this was his key to uh to I to 
getting back to health and healing. I absolutely am so impressed uh, that, that you said it. When you fight something, you give it energy. Exactly. And exactly. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is, is from Mother Teresa sometime uh -huh. in the 70s. Uh, someone came up to her and said, will you, will you come to our rally against the war? And she said, absolutely not. <laughs> and I said, what, what do you mean? And she says, I'll come to rally for peace, but if we go to fight the war, the war is just going to get stronger. So I think this is a, that's a, this is a really important philosophical point that many people don't get. It, it, it's, you know, there's so many examples of when, of where, when we try to fight something or oppose something that we don't like that we end up making it worse whether it's using uh, pesticides that have made insects worse antibiotics that have made bacteria more virulent and dangerous to us you know rather than accepting something and learning how to live in balance with it uh, the, the other thing that drives me nuts is i see these uh you know, the t-shirts and all that say fuck cancer like Last time I heard, that's how you make something reproduce. <laughs> the mindset that's there was good. just not going to work. Right, right. I like that. Uh, curing it seems better. Mm -hmm. um, so someone walks in to your office and they're saying, I have all kinds of stuff wrong with me. I, I feel totally hopeless. Your first thing is going to be, you can heal. Right. And, and your body can do this. And so let's say that they accept, accept this because, well, you're a well-known expert and you're a doctor and you have the white coat power and all of that. Um, what I have various tricks and methods that I use, but it's very much individualized depending okay. on my intuitive reading of that person. There are a few people who've come to me and told these horrific tales of mm -hmm. woe about themselves. And my reaction has been to burst out laughing. <laughs> oh, man. I can't do that with everyone. It's like the selected patient. You know how but, to read them. Okay. But it is a way of like, you know, breaking that mindset or getting them to look at the fact that they can change their take on that. If I have, if I can, I will introduce someone to someone who's had their condition and as well. Okay. But I can't always do this. This is why I'd like to see a national compilation of people that would make it easier to it, do that. There's a, a website, I think 23andMe about them. Um, and uh, Alexandra started, it's called Patients Like Me. Uh -huh. This was Great. specifically for people to find others Great. who were doing this. And it's weird though when you get things like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue and things yeah. where it's such, or Lyme disease, where it's such a fuzzy, people don't know if they have it, they don't think it's real. But even then you get a group of those people in a room and they get the social community. Right. Um, and as I have gone through your work over the years, I mean, you, you talk about these five things. You say food, movement, stress, social connection, and spiritual well-being yeah. is, is the, the palette right. you're playing with. Yeah. Did I miss anything in that? Well, breathing. I, mean, oh, okay. I place a great deal of emphasis okay. on that. Yeah. Okay. You know, with uh, in uh, the book that I wrote on aging, healthy aging, yep. when I wrote that, I made several trips to Okinawa to look at the phenomenon of healthy aging there, which right. is they had the highest concentration of centenarians. And when I was, as soon as I got there, obviously you can't attribute healthy aging to any one thing because yeah. everything's different. You know, it's a tropical Pacific paradise, clean air, clean water. Uh, people are very physically active. The diet, incredible. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the most interesting diets I've ever seen with the variety of sea vegetables, land vegetables, fish. But it was so striking the that old people there seemed happy and had a glow about them that I don't see among old people here. And I, and to me, the greatest difference that struck me as an American was the positive value put on aging over there. Mm. You know, the, the old, the oldest old people were all living treasures and the communities made efforts to include them in everything. They looked old. They were, you know, stooped and wrinkled. They didn't use Botox, uh, but they, ha they were happy and they felt part of, the community and loved and admired and valued. And that's, I don't see that happen here. One of the pieces of advice that I've, I shared in my aging book as well, just on the show, I wouldn't be here if when I was 30, I hadn't gone to an anti-aging nonprofit group <laughs> that I ended up running after a while. And I was learning from people who were two and in some cases, three times my age. Yeah. And having a friend who's way older than you will totally change your life. And if you're yeah. older, knowing a few college students, you might've gone through a few things where you could offer some good advice. Yeah. And it, it feels like that's just missing from. It is. I mean, we isolate old people with other old people. You know, we want them out of the way and out of sight. Um, I think the, one of the most toxic cultural messages here is that the value of life diminishes with aging. Uh, 
you know, marketers direct everything at a very young demographic. All of entertainment is, you know, for younger and younger people. Haven't they figured out that old people have all the money? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> uh, do you see that changing? Are, are we going to have some transformation in, in the West? Well, I think one hope is that the baby boomers, uh, you know, who are just getting into the ranks of the oldest old, um, have all along proved themselves to be very demanding and getting what they want and getting change. And, you know, maybe they're not going to settle for the models of aging that have been offered to people up to now. My dad and I talk about aging and he's in his 70s and... He's, he had a heart attack almost two decades ago. And he he says, you know, Dave, I, I remember the first time I was invisible. Uh, and, and and I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, uh, there was, when I was, you know, just a, a middle-aged, you know, people would see me and they'd respond a certain way. And then he said, I don't know exactly what happened. Uh -huh, Maybe yeah. my beard just got gray enough or something happened. All of a sudden... It, it was like I wasn't in the room. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, obviously, whatever younger people were with him, there was nothing intentional there. Nah. Um, is this going to take a, a media revolution? Is this going to take extra breathing exercises? It's going to take a lot, I yeah. think. But, you know, the the old and oldest older, the fastest growing segment of our population, and that's right. unprecedented. You know, never before in human history will populations have had such large percentages of its numbers in the ranks of the oldest old. So everything is changing. You know, yeah. Japan is a little ahead of us in this, and that's already caused huge changes in the Japanese economy, social structure. So I think we'll, we'll see things will be different. Yeah, things will be different. In your, your hierarchy there, in your list of things uh, where I didn't include breathing, um, where we had you know, food yeah. versus breathing, clearly you can go a few minutes without a breath and you're, you're in trouble. Right. How much time do you spend every day doing intentional focused breathing exercises? Well, in terms of clock time, I don't know. It may not be that much. It may add up to something like maybe 30 minutes okay. in the course of a day. Of focused breathing. Yeah, but I do it. In, I do some in the morning when I get up. I do in the evening when I fall asleep. I do some at various times during the day. Um, What's your best book on breathing? I actually I have this in all of my books. Okay. When the I I say try healthy aging as okay as a good one or one in uh, one called uh, health and healing is another. And on my website drweil.com there's a whole you can find videos yeah, you have a lot of videos about breathing. breathing. Okay. And you know I think I'm one of I'm unusual in being a doctor that places emphasis on breathing. I learned a lot of this stuff, well, some from studying yoga, but uh, from a couple of old osteopathic physicians. Really? You know, old-time DOs, one of whom in particular was my one of my mentors, Dr. Robert Fulford. I met him when he was in his 80s. He was a great model of healthy aging in place to How old were you when you met him? Uh, I must have been in my 40s. There you go, twice your age. See? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, I once asked him what was the secret of his health and vitality, and he didn't answer in words. He just took an enormous breath, and I never seen anyone's chest expand so fully wow uh and uh he he really believed that breathing was the most essential function of the human organism and that doing it properly was the key to good health so it, it is amazing to me how little research has been done on breathing yeah. because people don't take it seriously you know how could anything so simple cause such changes but i think learning how to breathe and practicing breathing techniques is it's free. It doesn't use any devices, and it's incredibly time and cost efficient. Well, now that you've said that, I'm sure someone out there is making a little vibrating thing for your belly button <laughs> as a result of that comment. Uh, you know, making fun of my quantified self friends there. Um, I did when I was an engineer. I I did five years of art of living breathing exercises. Mm -hmm. Every morning, I'd wake up and spend a half hour, uh -huh. yeah, hands in different positions, and to this day. Uh, when I go work with a, you know, a Qigong master or a, a Chinese medicine or a pranayama yoga teacher, they always say, oh, like, you know how to breathe. And I don't, on an everyday basis, do breathing exercises, although I recognize mm -hmm. it would be a good move. Uh, I don't I have kids, they disrupt my morning routine. Right. <laughs> but uh, I, I do believe that that just repeatedly doing it, it changed my, my nervous system. Yes. So my body just knows how to do it. What is the minimum amount of time that a the average listener would have to do structured breathing exercises for, for their lungs to just learn. There's, you know, I think it's the, 
it's the regularity of doing it rather yeah. than any amount of time because you're putting a signal into your nervous system. And over time, over weeks or months of doing that, you actually change the tone of the autonomic nervous system. And that's okay. what we're going to do. So the, the simplest technique that I teach, this four, seven, eight breath, okay. um, you know, it really takes 30 seconds to do it, but you've got to do it religiously. Four, seven, eight, walk me through that it's, right it's, now. You breathe in through your nose quietly to a count of four, hold your breath for a count of seven, blow air out forcibly through your mouth to a count of eight. And you, when you're learning this, you do it for a total of four breath cycles, okay. which takes 30 seconds, yeah. and you do it at least twice a day. Do you hold empty at all? No, uh, no, you hold on the in inhale. Okay, just on the inhale. Right. I remember I did my first yoga class where they, they said, breathe out, now hold your breath empty. And man, the first time I did that, I, immediate panic response, which makes no sense because you realize right. you know, I can do 10, 20 seconds with my lungs empty now uh, because the panic response is gone. You know, air is going to come in a while. But that took me a, a while. Maybe I was more sympathetic dominant than average. Mm -hmm. uh, do you recommend that, that lung empty at all? There's, you know, in pranayama, there are hundreds and hundreds of variations of breathing techniques. Um, and I, you know, it's fine to experiment with them. This, this one, this four, seven, eight breath that I've you know. worked with for a long time is the one that I found to be most time efficient. I told you that I have a very low heart rate and I can right. only attribute that to doing that breathing technique. And your heart rate's in the forties, low forties, sometimes high thirties. Okay. And I think that's from high vagal tone. And you don't you don't exercise all the time. And like I mean, I, I am physically active every day. I try to swim every day. I, w I have dogs that take me for walks. Uh, but other than, other yeah, than that, no. You're not Spartan racing and running triathlons? No. no okay. No. <laughs> no, and it really annoys the hell out of some of my exercise fanatic friends that I have a low heart rate that, that, that like that, and I don't do that kind of exercise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's just the, the benefits of breathing. When you have high vagal tone, though, that also can be a problem. It, you can pass out when you have high. I never. Tone. I'm not lightheaded. I don't pass out, and okay. I think I can mount a, a an adequate sympathetic response when needed. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> yeah. So, so your uh, your nervous system works really well. Yeah. Do you measure things like heart rate variability? Uh, I EEGs? don't. I'm interested in all that. No, I don't. Okay. I, you know, I can tell. I have nice warm hands most of the time, okay. and that's you know a part of the relaxation response. So, so things are working pretty well for yeah. you. What has shifted? I, I mean, I, I remember, just an example. Um, this is one of your older books, uh, and you wrote about mangoes. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> yes. You know the book I'm talking be, yeah. about? It's called okay. The Marriage of the Sun and Moon. Yeah. Tell me the story about mangoes. Well, that was the second book I wrote, and it was about uh, adventures I had yeah. during a period of about three and a half years when I traveled a lot, and mostly in, uh, in South America and Central America. And... Uh, I talked about perfectly ripe mangoes causing altered an altered state of consciousness. <laughs> you know, we often don't get really perfectly ripe mangoes up here, but if you're in a tropical area where they grow and you're eating one, I mean, you that's so all. Amazing. That's all. Everything disappears except for the the mango, <laughs> and it's the texture and the flavor. And and there are, I I think I quoted in there. Um, uh, descriptions of Indians in Bombay mm -hmm. during mango season lying on the ground, you know, with mango juice <laughs> dripping into their mouths with their eyes glazed. Uh, you know, it is a total en enveloping experience. Now, at dinner, uh, you were talking about glycemic index. Yes. Uh, however, and mango tends to be really high <laughs> in the glycemic index. I mean, have you, have you shifted your view, uh, or, or even more better phrased, how have you shifted your view over time from where you started out with these travels around the world uh, to where you've ended up now? Like what, what's up and what's down? Well, specifically, let's take sugar specifically. Yeah. Uh, you know, sugarcane is native to Asia and, and uh, in, in India, in many places, uh, there are vendors on streets that have big carts full of freshly cut sugarcane stalks, mm -hmm. and they have a sort of wheel press that's hand-operated, and you can have a freshly squeezed glass of sugarcane juice, which they squeeze lime into. Oh, wow. And it is absolutely delicious. And it's, uh, you know, it's not overly sweet, and it's got this sort of 
you know, back taste that's the molasses element, mm-hmm. which is not particularly pleasant. So it's a mixture of the yeah. sweet and unpleasant. But I think taking sugar in that form is just fine. And, you know, for Indians, it is a kind of sacred plant. Yeah. That's a very special thing. I think when you uh, boil that juice down and concentrate the stuff and then put it in large quantities and eat it every day, that's probably going to cause havoc. Uh, I grew up pretty much addicted to Coca-Cola and soda, you know, in my teenage years. And, and I mean, I can't imagine doing that now it tastes repulsive to me. Uh, but I was very unconscious about that. And I think drinking, uh, sweetened liquids like that all the time is n- really not a good thing for you. But I think, um, uh, natural, naturally sweet things in moderation are okay. And probably tropical fruit, if you're in the tropics and it's yeah. in season, I think it's probably okay. And if you look, you know, up in the in temperate regions, fruit ripened in the fall just before the winter, and it was appropriate to store up caloric energy yeah, as fat at that time of year to get you through the lean the lean period. So I think you know the difficulty is now we have that available to us all the time and in great quantity. I went to Hawaii for a month last year. So I said, well, I already live on an island, Vancouver Island. I'm just going to live on a different island with sunshine in the middle of winter for a month. <laughs> and I said, so I'm going to eat the tropical fruit that's in season. And I gained 2% body fat in a month eating tropical fruit, uh, which wasn't my intent, but it was delicious. And I don't really regret it that much. Uh, yeah, but I, I think I that's okay. It. And you can lose yeah. it afterwards. Yeah, I did. Right. The other thing that you wrote about in your book, that actually really shifted something for me this is in, in the same book mm-hmm. uh, was you talk about going mushroom picking, mm-hmm. right? And and you had this vivid description of how when you're in the right mindset, you'll just find mushrooms. Well, I first of all talked about uh, about finding four leaf clovers. Yeah, uh, and you know, I I met a woman once who was her thing was she would bet you that. You know, she'd bet you a dollar or five dollars that from the time you said go, if you were in an outdoor area, yeah. within a minute she could find a four leaf clover. Wow. And she always won. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, thinking about this, it made me realize the four leaf clovers are always there. You know, they're rare. The problem is being able to see them. And that's a pretty complicated one because the 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 visual pattern. But I think the there's two aspects to seeing. There's what goes into the eye but then there's whether the brain can recognize the pattern and if the brain if you don't have the key in place to recognize the pattern you can be looking right at something and not see it and not recognize it so that's the case with four leaf clovers and i found that i was able you know i developed the power to find four leaf clovers and i could take other people introduce other people to that experience so with mushrooms this was even more striking that when i was when i was learned i moved out to oregon uh, and it was the first time I was around lots of people that collected mushrooms, wild mushrooms. And often when I was trying to learn a new mushroom, I couldn't see them at first and other people were finding them and it would drive <laughs> me crazy, you know, that you'd be with somebody and they say, oh, there's one, there's one and putting them in their basket and I couldn't see a single one. And then after a period of time, I'd be able to see it. And even more interesting, some with some of these mushrooms, some of the, especially the magic mushrooms that were little... Yeah. If I was in the physical presence of somebody who was seeing them, I could see them. But if I got too far away from them, I stopped seeing them again. <laughs> now, that's really interesting that somehow there's some shared thing. But I think the, the the essential point is that you have to have the key in place to be able to recognize the pattern. Well, for- and, Which also makes me think that when you hear people tell you about experiences they have that aren't in your experience, whether it's experiences of telepathy or precognition – I'm willing to at least listen to that. And, you know, maybe I don't have the key in place to to recognize that. But I think there's probably a lot more out there than we're aware of. It reminds me of a, of a legend, one that, that's probably historical-based, is on one of the, the islands, tropical islands, the first time a, a ship from the West came out. Uh, no one could see the ship because it was unprecedented. Right. right. And then the the local medicine man noticed the waves were all screwed up. So he <laughs> stared at it for a couple hours and said, oh, there's a ship. And once someone developed the ability to see it, then yeah, yeah, yeah. everyone else could like, oh, these small things are appearing from something. And they, they, they finally yeah, like realized that. what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I went out in a forest after I read your book. This was years ago when it when it came out. And I grew up. Uh, in New Mexico, and there it's like toadstools, mushrooms are poisonous. Right. And, and I had inadvertently been taught a, a uh, 
like a, a pretty hostile negative view towards yes, mushrooms. Yes, me too. Uh, and I mean, Paul Stamos was just on the show, who's you know the leading guy in mushrooms. And so I, it took me a long time after I read your book to say, oh, it, I'm not seeing them because uh, I've learned not to see them. And so I taught me, because, oh, look, you know, magic, you know, f- you know, forest mushrooms, you know, the fairies are sitting on them. So my, <laughs> my kids walk through the forest in our backyard and they're, they're finding mushrooms like crazy because they didn't learn not to do it. Uh-huh. Are there other things in your life that you learned not to see that you discovered? <laughs> um, see, it's, well, you know, I, I would generalize that to things like magic. You know, I think okay. there's all sorts of magical stuff out there that, you know, I probably didn't see when I was growing up in a city, you know, that now I look for. And things like synchronicities and, yeah. and all of that, which, uh, which I find fascinating. Do you think that it's possible to uh, to create serendipity or synchronicities on demand? Are some people better at that than others? Yeah, but I think that, you know, again, I, I think if you start paying attention to them, they're there. Yeah. It's like the, <laughs> they're the always clovers. There. They're there, but you don't recognize them. And especially if, you know, when we say, oh, it's a coincidence, that's, that's, we, there's a coincidence is the label on the mental wastebasket that we throw certain experiences into that we say, oh, this has, this is, has no significance. If you start saying that maybe this is a highly significant thing, then they begin happening more frequently and they can guide you in a certain direction. Uh, There have definitely been some things in my life that I don't think are coincidences that I I feel like I don't have a good explanation for based on what we know about science. Although it seems like people have been studying that for thousands of years in, in Ayurveda and in fact, almost all of the ancient traditions have been studying corner cases, weird phenomena, yeah, yeah, yeah. and finding that they're rare, but that they happen. And maybe they happen more frequently if you begin paying attention to them. You know, there is a field now of coincidence studies. This is a formal you know, field of psychology oh, wow. that's coming into existence. There was just a big conference on it in London a friend of mine went to. I am going to have to go to that conference. Okay, uh, coincidence studies. Very uh, interesting. The fact that you mentioned it wasn't a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> what percentage of the human body do you think we understand so so in other words uh, you know like there, there's mechanisms in the body we think they're pretty i think there's them. so much we don't and you yeah. know it's also so recent there's one of the stories that i or one of the things i wrote about in uh, one of my early books is the uh the different understanding of the body in the east and the west uh with regard to the immune system um even as late as when i was in medical school in the early 1960s the appendix was thought to be a functionless organism right and we a vestigial organism something left over from evolution that had no purpose uh, when i was growing up you it was impossible to make it to your teenage years with your tonsils and adenoids yep. you know, every child had them removed because they were functionless organs useless organs that got infected so get rid of them um the thymus gland behind, well first of all with the appendix Many people, I don't know if this still happens, but up, I would say up through the 1970s, 1980s, many people had abdominal surgery, things like hysterectomy, gallbladder removal, who did not find out until they got their hospital bill that their appendix had also been taken out oh, wow. as a preventive measure because it's a useless organism that could cause trouble. The thymus gland behind the breastbone, mm-hmm. which is the master gland really of the important. immune system where yeah. lymphocytes go to get trained, uh, it's very active in childhood when it's programming white blood cells. And and then in adolescence, it, it shrinks. This is called the involution of the thymus. And this was taken as, a, I don't know if follow this logic, but this was taken as a sign that it was a useless organ, the wow. fact that it shrank in adolescence. So in, this is in the 1950s. Doctors at leading academic medical centers in North America invented a disease called thymic hypertrophy. The thymus is too large, which every child had. That was treatable by shooting x-rays at it to cause it, it's very sensitive to radiation, oh to cause it to shrink. I had a good friend in college who was a, went to Harvard Law School and became a Supreme Court clerk. He was from Chicago. And out of the blue one day, he got a letter from Michael Reese Hospital, the leading hospital in Chicago, saying, according to our records, when you were a child, you were brought into our clinic for a series of x-ray treatments to shrink your thymus. And we're now finding, years later, that people who had this treatment have high rates of thyroid cancer. Shocking. So we urge you to go in and have tests of thyroid function. I mean, how would you feel if you got such a letter? Now, wow. meantime, in China, you know, 
hundreds of years ago, they didn't know what the immune system was. They didn't know what these organs were because they didn't do autopsies and they weren't focused on body structure. But they developed the science of function. Mm-hmm. And they had a very clear concept that the human body had a defensive sphere of function. Mm-hmm. And they explored the natural world to find things that might enhance that and protect it. So all of these adaptogenic herbs and medicinal mushrooms that modulate immunity, they discovered. While in the West, we were saying these things were useless organs <laughs> and finding ways to destroy them or remove them. I mean, wow. I, that's just amazing to me. I, I actually inject a synthetically derived uh, protein fragments made by the thymus as part of my anti-aging program because it turns out having a bit stronger thymus function yeah, yeah, yeah. can help your immunity. Yeah. Wow. You know this, um, who are the people that do thymus tapping? Oh, wow. I, that's, a, that's a technique that's done, and I think, in Chinese medicine and others. You're supposed to like do this, and it's supposed to stimulate your thymus. I don't know whether it does, but at, least, tap on the breast at least they're taking it seriously. You know, I do light therapy over the thymus region, but I don't know if it actually, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't know if there's much of one left at my age. It's, right. it's hard to say. No, it's still active, I'm okay. sure. It is still yeah. active. Yeah. All right. Wow. Are you are you hopeful? Like, are, are things moving in the right direction in medicine? Yeah, I mean, I think it, I see it going both directions. But yeah. I think, first of all, the the technology is amazing. I think we're on the verge of being able to regenerate tissues and organs. I mean, yeah. that that stem cell, ther- real stem cell therapy, is not far off. Have you had any? No, because I don't trust any of the stuff that's out there. Even your own stem cells. I'm going to wait a little bit. Okay. But I think, you know, we're close to being able to regenerate uh, damaged spinal cords, damaged hearts, uh, pancreas when type 1 diabetes. I think that's within a few years, within five years. I, I do know one person who got intravenous stem cells without the intent of doing anything to his heart, um, who went in to have a corrective surgery for something wrong with his valves. And when they went in to do the scan before surgery, they said, um, you're problem isn't there anymore Great. we don't it must Good. be we a like miracle that. and he says maybe it was the stem cells i said no it was a miracle and i said all right fine <laughs> so regenerative medicine that's coming, coming. Uh, right. uh, genomics you know individualized yeah. targeted that's coming it's going to be a great thing have you have, do you have your genome no because i don't want to know that information <laughs> okay moment. i think there's you know a lot of mischief potential there okay but uh, also the other so that's one thing is you know the technological advancements which right. are great but the other is the progress of integrative medicine which yeah. is my my field absolutely and clearly that is now being driven by economics and it's becoming mainstream and so the combination of conventional medicine with natural uh, and lifestyle medicine and alternative therapies. This is, you know, something that's happening I think is great. One of the areas where I think we have the the biggest problem is is just with the quality of our food supply. (laughs) And people are eating at restaurants uh, a lot. And you and Kimball Musk, who's also been on the show, Mm -hmm. are are the two humans, at least in, in the U.S., I think who've done the most to say, let's find a way to make substantial numbers of restaurants that have real food, or you might call yeah, it true food. food. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, wonder if you got that, that idea, right? Yeah. Uh, do you see a, a change in, in demand or change in how people go to restaurants? Yeah, I mean, I think you still see a lot of the other stuff out there. Right. People want huge portions of you know, really unhealthy stuff. But um, I, 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 one of the reasons that I was motivated to start True Food Kitchen was that I get very frustrated eating out because uh, there's, yeah. you know, I, you know, it's fun to eat out, but there's not many places where I can get food as good as I can make at home and that meets my nutritional requirements. So I wanted to create a place, you know, serve the kind of food that I myself would make or like and turn other people onto that. And I do now see other, you know, I see this being copied um, and yeah. a lot more restaurants offering healthy options. Uh, so I think all that's to the good. Why did you insist on, there was one, one uh, burger on your menu and it's grass-fed. Why is grass-fed important? Actually, grass-finished is more important than <laughs> grass-fed. <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> Walk uh, me through that. Well, you know, when you can say grass-fed, but then the cows are taken to finishing lots where they're fattened up on grain. Give them some diabetes, right? Exactly, right. right. So one of the reasons for uh, grass-finished meat, if you're going to eat it, is that the fatty acid composition is much better. Okay. Uh, So, you know, that's one reason. Um, The other thing is that cows are not evolved to digest grain and so if they're on grain diets uh, you have it wreaks havoc with their digestive system this is one reason why they have to be given antibiotics uh and that 
creates a whole other series of problems. I, I know that the sheep on my farm that eat grass, they've never had antibiotics because they don't need them. There right. just isn't a point to it. Right. And, and to, you know, feeding cows grains, that's bad enough. But how about feeding them other cows or sheep? And that's yeah. what produced, you know, these uh, mad right. cow disease yeah. that break out. What do you think about uh, vegetarian versus vegan versus uh, grass-fed omnivore versus you know give me well the steak? I think I think human beings are omnivores yeah. and and uh, when I was in I most recently in Okinawa which was earlier this year I went out to this famous village called Ogimi Village which is the longevity village that you know advertises it has all these centenarians and uh, I sat around with a room full of very old happy looking Okinawans and they were all asking about you know what's the secret of their longevity everyone the first words they said were eat everything very interesting now they have a lot of great food available yeah, to them. there's also growing numbers of, of fast food restaurants and I don't think they meant that when they said <laughs> eat everything uh, and Okinawan longevity has actually plummeted in the past few years as a result of fast increasing consumption of fast oh. food McDonald's especially um so I think, first of all, we're omnivores. And I don't tell – I'm personally a uh, pescatarian okay. or a vegetarian, if you want to call it that. I'm so a lacto-ovo-bifo-porco-vegetarian. Uh, <laughs> <and stuff. laughs> right. Uh, I don't tell people to become vegetarians. But I think it is – in for North Americans, I would say it, it would be useful to reduce the percentage of animal foods in the diet. But the data is really clear on that. And that, right. that's a part of my aging book as, as well. It's like, and I would say particularly meat. beef because that – for the the planetary and environmental consequences of raising cows for food is pretty bad. Yeah, the way we're doing it, especially with corn and soy and all that all land, that, right. it, it's so inefficient. Right. I I flat out tell people never eat an industrial raised animal again if you want yeah. to live a long time, right. and that'll help the environment dramatically. Right. And and the the data about you know the average Americans eating so many pounds of meat, and I don't care if it's chicken or whatever, it's just too much animal protein. Right. Uh, but I think going, oh, if, if too much is bad, none is good might be extreme. Yeah, I think that's extreme. And also a game that I like to play is you know, to tell a group of people when I'm teaching a class, you know, name any food and I can give you an argument why you shouldn't eat it. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And if, awesome. Every, if that were all right, there'd be nothing to eat. Yeah. But li really, anything you name, I can give you good, good, sound reasons why you should not eat it. <laughs> well, you know, you, fruit in general, high in sugar, right? Go. And if you're a macrobiotics that you don't want it too yin. Yeah. Don't uh, want all that yin <laughs> in your body. <laughs> what do you think of macrobiotics? I think it is a very uh, limited, restricted dietary system that was appropriate for people in Japan. Um, I think it's, it's too high in salt. I think, you know, a diet that tells you never to eat fruit, that that's, you know, if, fruit is obviously meant to be eaten, right? That was designed mm -hmm. to be eaten. Uh, I, I, the people that I've known have been on macrobiotic diets uh, almost always end up binging by doing things like eating an entire <laughs> cheesecake. <laughs> and I think that's what happens when you're on too restricted a diet. Right. So I, there, and and yeah. there's some great macrobiotic foods, you know. I've eat, I've eaten some really really interesting, you know, macrobiotics things. But you know, after I'm eating it for a while, I think about cheesecake a lot. <laughs> I I was uh, I was invited to speak at the the largest vegan and largely raw, but largest vegan conference out there, mm -hmm. which was surprising because I'm pretty much like put butter in your right. coffee. It's not right. vegan. And I talked to the hotel, and there's a couple thousand people here. You probably know who I'm talking about, but I'm not going to call them out by name. And and I, I asked the head catering guy. I said, "You guys must hate this conference because you don't you don't make any money. No one will eat any of your stuff." And he just smiled. He said, "No." I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "This is our highest revenue for room service really? of the entire year. Really? So everyone goes down and they have like <laughs> two two kale leaves, <laughs> and they go up and they have the chicken nuggets, right? I love it because of that. Right? Craving, exactly. Exactly. Right. Right. Uh, and when I was a raw vegan, man, I I I, yeah. I was devout. I had giant bowls because I could never be full. I I bought like these one gallon bowls for my salad and i was eating all the time and eventually uh so this yeah. is probably why eat everything is a good idea yeah you know, eat okay. you eat everything in moderation and then you don't have to you know go on these binging cravings okay. cycles so that that gets rid of the ben and jerry's bucket at the exactly end of the, right the end of the kale salad all right. <laughs> I, I i got you on that yeah um 
what as a pescatarian though there's two things there's problems with being pescatarian yeah okay and the, the two i want to ask you about the most obvious one is probably mercury and other toxic metals in fish they accumulate in us as we age if we want to age well how do you deal with that personally okay so first of all the uh the form of um of mercury that's in fish is ethyl mercury, yep. which is not that bad for us. It's methyl mercury that's the problem. Yep. And we don't really know whether a high mercury levels in the blood of adults has any clinical significance. It's very bad. High for ethyl mercury no, or high, high high any mercury? mercury. Yeah. Okay. You know, I, I see people. This, this is mind blowing. No, All right. I see people that come and they're freaked out that they've got a high mercury level and, uh, you know, they stop eating fish, blah, blah, blah. It, it may be that in an adult, a high mercury level really really has no clinical significance. It's very bad for fetuses and infants with developing nervous systems. But we really don't know the significance of, of mercury in adults. It may not be so bad. And selenium, if you have adequate selenium in your diet, or if fish have adequate selenium in their diets, it really neutralizes the, the it, problems with mercury. There is good evidence that selenium it, it helps with it. We also but know that the think, levels are much higher than they used to be. But Clearly, you know, it is better to eat, and it's not just mercury, it's PCBs and yeah. other things that fish accumulate. So you do not want to eat large carnivorous fish or fish that spend a lot of time in coastal waters. Okay. You want to eat, you know, better to eat small vegetarian fish like sardines, for example, or, uh, you know, wild albacore tuna that are off, you know, the BC coast. Yeah. Those are good fish. Um so you want to know which are, which ones are okay and which okay. aren't. The other issue with fish is sustainability. Yeah. And, you know, there aren't going to be any fish pretty soon. Mm. And, um, you know, I think you want to really know which species are the ones like things like Chilean sea bass that you should never eat because they're, you know, they're not going to be there anymore. Even if they're really delicious? <laughs> <laughs> Bad. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um what about, uh, by the way, I'm in alignment with you on uh, on eating the vegetarian fish, eating sockeye, eating short-lived yep. fish. And if it's a 200-pound halibut, no, you throw don't. it back. Absolutely. It has lots of eggs in there. Absolutely. It'll make babies. You can eat the babies. And it's got a lot of stuff accumulated yeah. in its flesh. Yeah, it, it's not worth eating. And right. uh, so that's, that's just really important advice. Yeah. Now, we didn't talk about microplastics, which is something that I'm oh. really concerned about. As a pescatarian, yeah. you're getting a lot. Well, I think we're all getting a lot. I mean, yeah. the, the stuff that I see is that if you analyze, you know, fecal samples or or tissues, we've all got this in us. You know, there's no avoiding it, and I don't know what we can do about that. It's in everything, and I think we. I think it's probably good to try to phase plastics of all sort out of your life. Yeah, I I am pretty radical. I haven't talked about this, but there's a very simple solution to the plastic problem. It's called fire. <laughs> and the idea that we're not going to burn plastic because it might pollute the air. So let's permanently pollute the oceans and our bodies with tiny right. particles. Look, burn the plastic, capture the toxins from the smoke, and let's just be done with it. Uh -huh. uh, so I, I'm I'm a huge fan of high temperature incinerators with, uh -huh. with scrubbing smokestacks. They're just not politically correct. Right. Uh, but it, it seems like if we don't do that, I'm, I am I don't want to eat sea salt anymore. I want to eat, eat salt from yeah. a mine, but we'll run out of mine to salts, and yeah. what's left is pretty bad. Yeah. Okay. Let's well, I, I hope, I mean, I think I do see a change, and I think pretty recently, I think yeah. the climate stuff has really gotten through to yeah. people. I, I certainly see more awareness of the environmental crisis than, than, than I've ever seen. Let's talk salt for a minute yes. since we're on, on the ocean. You mentioned, uh, you know, people getting too much salt on on certain diets. Uh, how much? Like, what's your take on salt? Complicated issue. Yeah, you know, very divided uh, data there. Personally, I think that uh, I think we've made people too afraid of salt. Yeah, I, I think some people are salt sensitive, and it's you know, true. and they eat anything salted, and their fingers swell. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, and probably affects their blood pressure. For most people, it may not be that much of an issue. Having said that, I think it is fairly easy to change your your taste preference for salt. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up eating salted pretzels and nuts. I can't eat those things anymore. If I'm going to eat nuts, I like them, you know, unsalted, like raw unsalted nuts. I'd rather have chips that don't have any if salt on their coatings. I I rarely add salt to my food. I, I cook with salt. I use it as a seasoning, but I don't add it. I, I'm amazed when I see people in restaurants who before they taste the food 
mm-hmm. you know, put salt all over it. No, did you notice I did that? I did. <laughs> <laughs> Here's why I do that. I have yeah. low blood pressure. Okay. <laughs> so okay, great. I, I intentionally in, increase my sodium intake, and I actually know that if, if your executive chef who came by was in here, I wouldn't have done it out of respect because <laughs> it's really rude when the chef is there. But it, for me, it's a, a medical thing. And I, I looked at the data on renin levels. And if you get your salt down to around two grams a day, um, your renin levels go up, which increases your heart attack risk. Right. So it, it's just like meat. It's way too much yeah. meat is bad for you, but zero isn't good. Right, exactly. And, and sometimes I see people who are, who are low on salt. They have low blood pressure. They have POTS. Right. Or uh, they're, they're just getting down too low. Right. And then you get a bunch of people who are bloated all the time and eating tons of salt and their kidneys don't work. Yeah, you know, you're right. Do you know about the dangers of low cholesterol? Oh, uh, to do, very, do tell. Very yeah. low cholesterol uh-huh. is strongly associated with increased rates of suicide and accidental death, and nobody knows why. And stroke. And stroke. And acting like a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out people who don't have oxidized cholesterol but have higher LDL yeah. are much more likely to live longer, too. Uh-huh. Uh, and and it, it is a complex subject, but when I was a, a raw vegan and I got my... Uh, my cholesterol down into like the 160s, I, I don't think that was good for me at all. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I'm much, I, I am a much happier, higher performing, less inflamed person when I'm around between 200 and 220. Uh-huh. Right. And my HDL is very high as a portion of right. that. Right. And it's, it, it's, I'm sure, individual, but it, it can all be measured now in a way that, you know, when you went to medical school, we couldn't get the data even on cholesterol right. and particle yeah, size. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful that we, uh, if people listen to this and they get one thing out of this, it's that maybe there's some moderation in there. How about the dangers of being too lean? Oh, do talk about that. I would love to talk about that since I'm not one of those people. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think one, 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 well, there's several dangers of being too lean. One is if you fall, you're much more likely to injure yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, it is good to have some padding. Another is that it's good to have some caloric reserves because for example, uh, if people, it's quite common that if people get acute pneumonia or influenza Mm -hmm. with a high fever, you can lose, some people can lose 20, 25 pounds in 48 hours as a result of incredibly revved up metabolic activity. If you don't have that to lose, you die. Yeah. So I think there there are a number of and plus I think being very lean is also associated with less good mental emotional well being. And there's the part where your your lungs actually are much more likely to rupture. Yeah. Um, like they they get adhesions to your right. uh, to some sort of other layer of fascia. No, you're a doctor. Right. I'm not. <laughs> but I have a friend who's down to four point eight percent body fat, and mm-hmm. he's you know a picture of health, ripped, lean. And like, man, you, you got to eat some carbs already. Like, right. like, like this, it looks good and you feel good, but it's not a longevity strategy. Yeah. What is the ideal for for men? I like the lowest possible healthy body fat for the average person you come across. I, I don't. I'm not going to give a figure there. Okay. I don't know. Got it. I I I haven't measured it in the last month or so. I'm around between ten and eleven percent. But it isn't because I'm trying to do that. It's because when I finally got my food and my sleep and everything right, I went from being the 300 pounds, God knows what percentage body fat, to the 200, mm-hmm. 210 pound guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't want to go lower. All right. Uh, and if I did, I, I would go get some ice cream or something. And you'd be unpleasant to be around. <laughs> even, even more unpleasant. Right. Th- uh, thanks, Andy. <laughs> now, I've been asking people on the show lately because I'm focused on anti-aging right now. I have been for 20 years, but this is my, my big book just came out on that. And I've been asking them, how long are, are you, are they planning on leaving? So I'd like to know your number. As a guy who's written a very readable book on healthy aging, what, what's your number? Like how, well, how I'm 77 now. Okay. And, uh, which I don't know how I got here, but that's, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I'm closing in on 80. Okay. Um, I don't know. I, I've, I have a feeling I, you know, might want to live to my mid eighties or late eighties. I don't know that I want to live longer than that. But you're comfortable. I mean, you're yeah, full of energy. Your eyes are sparkling. Your brain yeah. works. Yeah, brain so works. Do you, you feel like you're done. You did what you came here to do. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I could probably do some more stuff, but I'm quite happy with what I've done. All right. So you're like, and I don't want to. You know, I see people in their. Uh, not I have a good friend who's 94 now and is you know a model of exceptional aging but you know i hear him talk about that all, all the people he knew were dead yeah and that that's not you know not a lot of fun and i've talk, i quoted a woman who was uh i think she was 102 and she said you don't want to live this long she said look at the world now look <laughs> at the way it's going it's very clear where we're going and i don't want to be around for that 
So a, a couple. So I don't know. I'm not going to make okay. a prediction. I'll wait and see. We're we're both in town for for Joe Polish's uh, Genius Network conference, and Joe's been on the show, and, and it was actually a very powerful interview he gave about you know, his his path through life as an addict and and uh, just dealing with trauma and addiction. And another guy's going to be here for sure who's been on the show, Dan Sullivan, mm-hmm. who's 73, yeah, and is absolutely convinced he's going to live to at least 156. And he talked about the same thing, and he said, you know. Uh, I decided I have to get myself a bunch of younger friends because because all my friends are, are starting yeah. to, to pass to, you know to, to to pass and he's like I and, and they all want to sit around and you know, do stuff do, do stuff <laughs> like play cards and he said I need to move uh, and so he has this youthful vigor that's that's very intentional uh, but I, I haven't I haven't yet interviewed anyone out of this is now probably about seven hundred interviews. Um, who's in their seventies at your level of health, and saying, yeah, maybe another five, ten years, and, and then I'm, I'm kind of done. I'm, are, are you one of those? I don't know. Advanced I'm, people. I'm, I'm going to pass consciously. You're going to sit cross-legged for three days and <laughs> upload yourself to the. <laughs> maybe I. I <laughs> this is you'll like this. I, I when I was writing healthy aging, I got in, I got to know a lot of the aging research community. Yeah. And uh, one of them, one of these researchers sent around a survey to the community of aging researchers. Uh, and one of the questions in it was, if you could live as long as you wanted and have good health, how long would you want to live? And the responses came back. There was a terrific difference in gender responses. Men on average said they would like to live a thousand years. <laughs> Women on average said they'd like to live to 120 years. And the person who did the survey said they couldn't figure out an explanation for this difference. Well, I thought about it and it's not that hard to come up with an explanation in our society women are the caregivers you know, if you're being taken care of why not live to a thousand years but, but, your dishes all yeah, a thousand right. years. but if you're you know but women seem to want to live on, only until they know that their grandchildren are going to be okay and then they want out of here and interestingly 120 years seems to be where the human lifespan is yeah. fixed yeah. uh so women are much more realistic there i i like that my my number of 180 is well, I know 120 is what we can do today, yeah. and I'm counting on my friends in the anti-aging research field over the next 100 years. If they can't do 50% better, like they're not very good at their jobs. Well, we'll see. We'll <laughs> and, see. And also, that's assuming we have enough soil. We only have 60 years yeah, of all topsoil. That. All that. There's that. And, yeah. you know. Can I say some words about matcha, my favorite oh, beverage? Let's <laughs> talk about anti-aging stuff. We were going to talk about that before. Um, yes, let's talk about matcha and in the context of aging and in the context of being an awesome Japanese beverage that's almost as good as a good sake. Sorry. Okay, <laughs> I, I, that's well put. Uh, my, it's my favorite alcoholic beverage. Oh, yours, okay, mine too. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, excellent. Uh, and it's the only one I find a good sake that you can drink unlimited quantities of and get really buzzed and not have a hangover. You know, I have exactly the same experience. Yeah. That's why I like it. Plus, it just tastes good. Well, okay, so sake has magic powers. All right, we're, we're there, but let's talk matcha. matcha. Because so you, first of all, you yeah. know, I, I became interested in, I went to Japan when I was 17 okay. and lived with Japanese families. And I got, first of all, very turned on to tea in general. I love Japan. When I was growing up, uh, tea was what old people and sick people drank, and it was terrible. Uh, and Japan was the first time I had delicious tea, delicious green tea, sencha, and I also tried matcha for the first time. This was 60 years ago. Yeah, okay. a long time ago. Japan was very different. And uh, I was blown away by the color of matcha. I'd never seen anything of that vibrant green. It's like green paint. Yeah. Green, unbelievable. And then the and the complex flavor and the act of whisking it, that fascinated me. So I used to... I, I made a number of trips to Japan in the 1970s, 1980s, and I'd always bring matcha back and turn friends on to it. But, you know, nobody knew what it was. And now suddenly matcha has exploded in popularity in North America. But it bothered me that so few people had tasted really good matcha because the powdered tea is so, it's so finely powdered that it oxidizes very quickly, loses its color, becomes bitter, loses its flavor, and probably many of its healthful qualities. So I started a company. I got the URL matcha.com and created a company, Machikari, and we import very good uh, quality matcha from Uji outside of Kyoto, which is where the best stuff comes from. And uh, it's, it's, it's just a wonderful beverage. I drink it every day. I, it's the only form of tea where you consume the whole leaf. Yeah. Uh, contains high levels of of uh, very healthy antioxidants and uh, L-theanine and the combination of L-theanine and caffeine produces a state of alert relaxation, which is very different from you know other forms of caffeine. So it has everything to recommend it. And uh, I, I before I stop talking about that, 
I have a discount code to offer people oh, listening yeah, to this co- podcast. What is it? It's bulletproof fifteen one five. Okay. And, uh, and thank you for that. That will, that will get you a discount on wonderful matcha. So from matcha. matcha.com. Matcha.com. M-A-T-C-H-A, uh, Bulletproof 15. And, and guys, we didn't plan this ahead of time. Thank you for your generosity. Um, this is just uh, just good stuff. Uh, so True. I just, I, I gotta say, if you've never tried matcha, you owe it to yourself to give it a shot. Thank you. It'll change By the way, life. a very good thing to eat with very good matcha oh, what is, is a piece of dark chocolate. Oh, yeah. That, that's, that complements the, uh, the flavor of matcha very well. I've tried a few chocolate bars that had matcha incorporated in them, but yeah, not doesn't seem to work. No, but eat, having a bite of good yeah. dark chocolate and then a sip of matcha—it's something with the bitterness of yes, the two. Exactly. So it's 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 one of those things. I would put it very high on the anti-aging scale, the antioxidant scale. All right, guys, this has been a fantastic interview, and my mind is still blown <laughs> that Dr. Weil is saying, ah, uh, mid-80s, that's good enough for me, but I, I will respect any answer out there. Well, come back to me when I'm in my mid-80s, and that, we'll see. That was what I was thinking. I, I think you'll say maybe a couple more years. Okay. That, that's what a lot of people say, as long as they're feeling good. And yeah. given how healthy you are now and given your set of knowledge, I think you can feel good for as long as you decide to. Great. I will. You guys probably know where to find Dr. Wild's work, drwild.com. Uh, read one of his books, uh, try his matcha, go to True Food Kitchen. Uh, this is one of the greats in our field who's shifted the way we think about mind, body, breathing, and it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. A human upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.